My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? My name is Thomas Malchow, and welcome to the Train Fully podcast. Our podcast is dedicated to golf fitness, and every episode we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. So if you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, this episode is about longevity, and I'm just so excited we have Dr. Nick Denubli joining us. So Nick is a world-renowned orthopedic physician and best-selling author of the book, Framework, Your Seven-Step Program for Healthy Muscles, Bones, and Joints. I've read it, and I recommend that you read it as well. I also recommend that you check out his website, drnick.com, and give him a follow on Twitter. His handle is Dr. Nick USA. So like I said, I'm just so excited to have him here. Nick has been in the trenches and on the front lines with some of the greatest athletes of all time. He worked with the Philadelphia 76ers for 12 years, and he currently works with the Pennsylvania Ballet. He is one of the pioneers of sports medicine, and his influence is all over the health and fitness industry, not just in the United States, but all over the world. He served on the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's the Chief Medical Officer of the American Council on Exercise, and he's the Vice President of the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. In fact, Nick's been chosen as one of the top doctors in the United States for over two decades. So we're going to take this opportunity with Nick to find out what we can do to build a more durable body and increase our longevity. And I'll be honest with you, this is something that I'm going through right now. I turned 44 this year, and I've noticed that it definitely takes a lot more preparation for me to be able to perform and compete at a high level. Things don't come easy anymore. Now, the good news is I can still perform at a high level, but it takes a lot more planning, a lot more preparation, and a lot more effort. And if you're over the age of 40 or 50, you're probably noticing the same thing. It might feel like your body is starting to break down a little bit. It's harder to play golf on back-to-back -back days. Maybe you're not hitting the ball as far or as well as you used to. And maybe you've noticed that you're starting to lose focus and concentration on the back nine, which is causing you to make silly errors and costing you a good round of golf. Now, if you are noticing these things, the good news is a lot of it is reversible, but you will need to start taking your training and your recovery a lot more seriously. And I'll be the first to admit it. It does take a lot of work and it takes targeted work. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to fix your imbalances, find your weak links and improve the quality of your movement. And very few people know how to do that. And very few people have the mindset to put the effort in to do that. But here's the deal. If you do, then you have an advantage, right? So if you are over the age of 40 or 50 and you want to be an elite athlete, then you need to start preparing like an elite athlete and you need to start taking care of your body. But maybe you're not over the age of 40 or 50, Maybe you're in your 20s and your goal is to make it as a professional golfer. Well, this applies to you as well. I work with professional golfers and I work with professional athletes. I know how they train. I know how they prepare. And I tell people all the time, the two biggest things that separate the professionals from the amateurs are mindset and preparation. Professional athletes take their training very seriously, and they take preventative maintenance very seriously. Now, for a lot of people, training and maintenance work aren't fun. Well, it's not fun for the pros either, but they do it so that they can perform and compete at their highest level. And the bigger the opportunity, 
the bigger the preparation. Now, the Train Fully program shows you how to prepare, and it consists of the same routines that I use with professional golfers to help them build a durable body that will get them through a competitive golf season. It does take sacrifice, but it shows you step-by-step how to make the passage from amateur to elite. So you can pick that up at trainfully.com. I also recommend that you pick up Nick's book, Framework, as well as the other books in his Framework series. These books will help you extend the warranty on your body. So Nick is here, and we're going to discuss how we can build a high-performance body that will last. All right. So joining us today, we are absolutely honored to have a world-renowned orthopedic physician considered by many to be one of the top doctors in the United States, Dr. Nick Danubli. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So you have the endorsement of some of the greatest athletes of all time. We're talking about names like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Cal Ripken Jr., Allen Iverson, and Keith Hernandez. Can you please describe the work that you do with athletes? Well, um, as, uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon who my main area of practice in my real life is knees at this point. You know, when I was younger, I did a little bit of everything in orthopedics and I was always a sports medicine doc. When I first started out, that was a new field. And I was one of the, one of the pioneers in that one of the first, and it just, I was attracted to it because I've always been into health, wellness, exercise my entire life. I've been an athlete my entire life. And when this field came out, I thought I was going to be a hand surgeon. And all of a sudden there's this field where you're working with athletes and you're covering games and, you know, highly motivated, highly fit people, a whole different world. And so it was perfect for me. But what I realized and what a lot of us realized is that so much of what we learn from dealing with athletes, whether it's, and I also the, I think the greatest athletes in the world, I've been Pennsylvania ballet's physician for most of my career and dancers are unbelievable. And what I've learned from working with dancers and other athletes, you learn that you can apply this to everybody, really, whether it's an elderly person with with the way we manage them nowadays, uh, people injured at work, workers' compensation, the average patient, young kids that we've learned so much from athletes that we now apply to how we treat other people of keeping people moving, keeping them fit, trying to reach maximum health and wellness. So um, you know, working with athletes is, is interesting because they've got, they're so motivated. They've got rich physiology. They've got goals, very clear goals, and you're just helping them along the way with that. And, and they, they seem to do so well. And I, you know, when I have my regular patients and they're like, well, you know, why can't, why am I not as back on the court in a, in three weeks or four weeks? And they don't realize the work that goes in behind the scenes, um, and the access they have to certain rehabilitation. And, and, you know, we have kids that want to go to therapy for an hour, three times a week, and they think they're going to get back as quick as a pro athlete recovering from an ACL reconstruction who, you know, somebody like Carson Wentz when, when, you know, I'm a Philly guy. So, and I didn't take care of Carson, but when he tore his ACL, it was so helpful to me because here's a guy who waited nine months to go back, which is what we all think you should do. And even then afterwards, he said, I don't think I was ready. I don't think I was quite ready, even physically, mentally, and because it is a process. So, you know, when my kids who tear their ACL and it's six months, they're feeling pretty good, but I know they're not ready. The graft that we put in is not ready. Physiologically, they're not ready. Mentally, they're not ready. And, but they feel, you know, they're kids. They think, Hey, why can't I play? And I'll look, Hey, if Carson Wentz, can't do it. And this guy has nothing else to do twice a day, every day, he's spending three hours twice a day working out and you're not doing anything near that. So it helps, but um, yeah, I've been lucky. I've been fortunate, you know, people like Arnold who has become a dear friend. Uh, I've learned so much from, you know, hanging around with a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger, just his vision and his, the things he accomplished. And, and he's just a really, really brilliant guy, but I've been lucky. Alan Iverson, he was a blast to work with no tougher athlete, ever anywhere. He was unbelievable. He, he was fearless and confident and uh, he took a beating, but just, you know, that little guy like that to be crashing into Shaquille O'Neal and go back and do it over and over again and go full blast into him and not care what happened. Um, and to see how bruised and beaten his body was in the training room, but it never, never stopped him. He, he, he was unbelievable. So it's fun. 
Well, I've been a multi-sport athlete my entire life. I'm not a Hall of Fame athlete, but I can perform at a fairly high level. I turned 44 this year. And I can say that in the last two years in particular, I've noticed that if I want to perform at that high level, then I need to have everything dialed in. My training, my nutrition, and my sleep. I can still perform at a high level, but it takes a lot more planning and preparation now. Why is that? What happens to our bodies as we age? Well, you you know, if you've read any of my books and, uh, you know, I'm not pushing books, but I, I think my, my first, my bestseller framework, the original framework, your seven step program for healthy muscles, bones and joints really was, was different. It changed the way people think about your body. And it's because I always, I always thought that, you know, we're always talking about longevity. We're living longer. That's great. We're looking better as we age. We're living longer but it's our frame that's fa failing us. So, you know, and it's failing in droves, and especially the aging baby boomers were the first generation to really push their body to the limit, you know, with age. When, you know, my parents, not only did they rarely ever do anything, but if they ever went out and did something and were sore the next day, they would never do it again. And so the baby boomers were really the first generation to go out and beat themselves up. And, you know, in the last hundred years or so, we've doubled, doubled the human lifespan, but but evolution is not fast enough to give you a body that that uh, is going to last that long. So you have age-related changes in in the body that are predictable and that will occur, and they even occur at younger patients who have had injuries. So the body does change with age. And I always say, you know, you 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 said 44. I say around the age of 40 is when you start having these changes, and it's like gray hairs and wrinkles. Stuff happens internally in the body. And my book was really about. I sat down and I thought, okay if you could do everything in your, in your power to have a frame that's going to last as long as you do and frame, meaning your, your musculoskeletal system, your body that walks you around. And that it's not just about, it's not just about longevity. It's the other side of the coin is durability. I talk about, so you really one without the other, you, you got, you got nothing. Talk to any older person who is, you know, hurting and can't get around and can't do the things they want. It's, it's really problematic. So, my book is about, well, how do you extend the warranty? How do you get that extended warranty on your, on your body? And I looked at, you know, I, I really sat and thought deep, very holistically. It's not just about strength and it's about flexibility. We know you lose flexibility with age. You know you lose muscle with age. So some of that's reversible. But what other things, you know, nutrition. Nutrition is so important, especially the second half. You get away with a lot the first half of your life. Just go in the Sixers locker room and watch what Allen Iverson would eat before a game. You know, you'd be like, how's he do this? But guaranteed the second half of his life, he can't get away with that. Um, sleep, recovery. Recovery is such a big thing. Your body does not recover as quickly. And I just, you know, I'm a big tennis guy and I'm a big Federer. Roger Federer is, you know, I idolize Federer. I love Federer. It's one of the athletes I haven't met. He's on my bucket list, hopefully someday. I'll get to meet him. Uh, I've met so many of the top people, but um, Roger is 40, right? Here he's pushing 40 and he's playing Wimbledon. I just saw he went, he was going into his fifth set today. This is in the first round at Wimbledon. First round, he's got a guy who's pushing him to the limit. Now the guy gets falls and gets hurt and drops out of the fifth set. And that's kind of a, I think Fed lucked out because if he goes five sets in the first round, recovery has been an issue for him. He gets a couple five setters early on. I don't care who he's playing. He's not going to do as well. Whereas the young guys, the 20 year olds, five setter, no problem. I'll be back tomorrow and do, do the same thing. So recovery is a big thing. And I hit one of the whole chapters is on, on recovery. And the other thing is about your mind. What, what role your, your mind plays in, in how you feel and how you heal, how you recover your mindset. I believe it's so important. It's one of those things that I learned a lot from Arnold, the power of the mind. If you read his book, Pumping Iron, it's, it's a great book. It's a fun book, but he was way ahead of his time talking about things that the mind can do in the body, you know, that people thought he was crazy back then and just talking off. But, but we've had scientific studies with biofeedback and with meditation show that you can change your body and you know the, the managing stress stress is like a rust on your body and if you're under a lot of stress it affects your frame so i tried to put all that together into you know what can you do and i had a self-test it all starts with a self-test let's put you through this quick test every question i ask has a red yellow or green red meaning you know green meaning yeah you're okay there yellow meaning oh, i don't know you might want to do things a little differently here 
or red light is, hey, there's there's a problem here. You got to you got to address this or at least manage this uh, and improve this if you want to frame this going to hold up. So I have this self test. You go through. You try to find your weak links, which is the other thing, the flaws that you have in your body, and we all get those with age. Some of them are age related changes. It could be an old injury, you know, that old injury that left you with a weakness or a stiffness in, in, in a body part, or you never fully rehabilitated that, that issue so it's vulnerable. There are weak links that are imbalances that we have. You know, some people are just tighter than others in muscle groups. Others, you know, some of the imbalances I see in a lot of athletes are self-created because of the sport or activity that you do. If that's all you're doing, you know, you tell me a sport, I'll tell you what's good about it. I'll also tell you the typical imbalances that it will create in your body. And things like tennis and golf, those unidirectional sports, you're gonna create imbalances. Or you look at a runner, you give me any runner who doesn't do a lot of other things. And I will show you the tight hamstrings, the tight calf, the tight lower back, the forward flex shoulders. It's just part of that activity if that's all you're doing. So you need to, you need to balance, you need to look at, you need to look at strength, flexibility, core, aerobic conditioning, and are you doing equal aspects of that in any given week? Equal amounts. It's like with vitamins, they talk about your, um, your minimum daily requirement of, of a vitamin. Well, I, with exercise, I look at minimum weekly requirements of certain things. And it's hard to believe this, but you should almost be spending equal amounts of time on all of those areas, aerobic, uh, um, strength, flexibility, core, I'd even add to that some balanced or three-dimensional. I write, I write about that a lot. You know, are you 3D fit? You know, a lot of people who only go to the gym, you get, you feel like you're fit and you're doing unidimensional kind of stuff. But I learned a lesson. You know, I was a pretty good tennis player when I was younger. I took it up late. I didn't, I taught myself in med school. So a lot of bad habits, I got pretty good. And then when I got busy in my practice, I gave it up for many, many years. And when my kids were old enough to take tennis lessons, I would go with them and the Pro kept trying to get me to come onto the court. Come on, I heard you used to play. Come on, come on out. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm done with this sport. And then one day he got me in a weak moment, and I went out and I hit it, and I and I and I got hooked again. But but what I learned is when I went out, then I was a pretty fit guy. I was working out regularly at the gym, and but when I got on the court again, I realized three to my 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 agility, my three dimensional movement was really flawed. My hand-eye coordination wasn't the stuff I thought I could just do again. I was, you know, clumsy with my feet. I wasn't seeing the ball right. And, and, and I got that all back. And today I'm a better tennis player than I've ever been. As, as you and I talked off camera, I'm the United States Professional Tennis Association member. I'm certified. I can instruct uh, and coach if I want. And I play, you know, for my age, I, I play, I think I play really well. But Playing tennis gave me all of that came back. It, it all came back, but it took work. And interestingly, and I, you've probably heard this, there's been there's been some really great work done by some pioneers. Stephen Blair at the Cooper Clinic is the one who really did the sentinel research that said that looked at you know sedentary behavior versus active. If you're active or sedentary, you, you know sedentary behavior is like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. If you're sedentary, you're gonna die younger, you know? And if you're active and you're a little lucky and you have the right genetics, you're gonna live longer. We know that. More recently, in recent years, somebody said, well, how about all those active people? Is there any difference between them? You know, let's look at all the active people. You know, we know they live longer, but are they different? Are basketball players different than runners, different than cross country skiers, different than... So they looked at active people you know, you're talking about probably 60,000 people. And there were two different studies with those kind of numbers. And they said, look at all the active people and any anything interesting out of that. Well, what was fascinating out of that is the number one longevity and far above the number two, I mean, on both studies stood out were tennis players. I mean, so you think about that, you're like, whoa, I would have said maybe initially, well, how about the distance runners? They, they really have the best aerobic capacity. So they're gonna do the best. Anybody in these endurance athletes are probably gonna be the best, but okay. So why are tennis players consistently, and still the other ones did well, don't get me wrong, far better than somebody who's sitting on a couch. So anything is better than sitting. But so why are tennis players, and there's nothing magical, I think about you have to be playing tennis, but what, what when I started thinking about this and I've written about this is the tennis, it gives you aerobic exercise, especially if you're playing some signals. It gives you some anaerobic because it's short burst activity. 
um, it gives you agility, the stuff that I lost when I wasn't playing that. So as you get older, fall prevention, if you are have better proprioception, we call it, which is that your internal uh, GPS that keeps you steady, you, you lose that. If you're not using it, you lose it. And people start falling when you get older. You lose muscle, you lose agility, you start falling. That fall could be a big change in your life, that hip fracture, that wrist fracture, your life changes at that point. And some people never come back from that. So the tennis players have agility, but what, what else they have that I think, and hand-eye coordination, all of this adds in, but the one thing that stood out to me is that it's the social constructs, the, the, the interaction with other people that when I got back into tennis, I made a whole new bunch of friends. When we play, and I'm gonna play tonight in this 96 degree heat in Philadelphia, Afterwards, we play, we all go up, we pick a place. We usually are at, at on Tuesdays at Overbrook. Um, it's a golf club, but I, they also have tennis there. I play there. And they, we go up to their, um, to the locker room where they have food. And it's usually 10 of us, 20 of us. And we sit around for an hour or two into the social interaction. And there's been tremendous studies that show that social interaction is a predictor of longevity. And if you're isolated in life, if you're down and depressed in life, if you don't have that social interaction, which a lot of us, you know, craved and lost in the last year with COVID. I mean, that was really tough for a lot of people, but tennis also provides that. So I'm not saying other sports don't do that. You know, golf gives you that social interaction as well, but it doesn't give you a lot of the other uh, fitness related things that you need. I laugh because we're, we're right next to the golf course and we'll, we'll sometimes smell the cigar smoke. And I always say, you know, if you can smoke while you're doing it, I don't know that it counts as a sport. I kid around with my golf buddies, but um, no, it's still a great activity. You're out walking, you're out in nature, you're with friends. There's a lot to it. It's a great, great sport and it's very challenging mentally as well. But so tennis players have that, the social interaction. And the joke I make is like when people talk about this, well, I thought runners would be would do better. And I said, you know, have you ever seen a happy runner? Have you, my wife's a runner. She runs 10 miles a couple times a week. But you, when you see them coming down the street, it's a great fitness activity. They have tremendous hearts. They have other things. They're very lean, but social, you yeah. know, it doesn't give you that happiness. Uh, I don't think, it, I don't know. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, I know I covered a lot of ground there, but um, you can get a lot of messages there for people about balancing your workouts you know, and looking for those other things in life that, that keep you going and keep you, keep you durable. Well, I'm glad you mentioned your book framework because in it, you do talk about the importance of finding your weak links and uncovering what you call stealth ailments. So that resonates with me because I'm a kinesiologist and my approach is to identify and fix imbalances in the body. And I've been doing this now for 20 years and it still surprises me what a dramatic impact fixing imbalances can have on both the quality of somebody's life as well as their athletic performance. Why does fixing our imbalances do such a remarkable job of rejuvenating the body? That's a great question. Uh, there, there are certain imbalances that are predictors of, of ailments for sure. So, and there, there are certain imbalances that are a result of ailments, right? So, uh, and none of us are without weak links. I mean, if you live long enough, you're going to have them. If you've had prior injuries, you got them. Some of the, some of it could be genetics. You're just unlucky and you've got this tendency, your alignment can be off. You know, you have your bow-legged, your knock knee. There's not much you can do about those things, but, but if you find that weak link and say, okay, if I can't correct that weak link. So if you have a weak link, you have three options. You can, you can resolve it and get rid of it. Right, that would be great. Work with somebody like you, or go to physical therapy, or even have surgery if you need it, uh, and and get rid of it. It's gone. It's it's a it's in the past. You're good again. Not all of us can do that when you have a weak link. You can, you can, you can fortify it. You can toughen that weak link. So strengthen the things around it. Make it less vulnerable. That it's not going to be an ongoing, constant issue. You've got that arthritic knee that is not going away. So what can I do? Well, maybe you need an insert in your shoe to, for cushioning. Maybe you have better, you need better muscle around the knee. You need to lose some weight to take the pressure. You know, every pound you carry, your knee reads as five to seven pounds. So wow. it, 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 it amplifies the stresses across a, a damaged joint. 
the good news there is every pound you lose, your knee thinks you lost five to seven. So you don't have to lose a lot to unload a joint. So you're working around that weak link, you're fortifying, you're doing everything you can to make it less of an issue or not an issue. And sometimes you can't even do that, right? So the third thing that you can do, if you can't get rid of it, resolve it, or fortify it, make it less vulnerable, you can learn to safely work around it. And that's that's where when you're dealing with a lot of older uh, mature athletes, they call them, you know, used to be geezers, old <laughs> geezers like myself, but now it's the mature athlete is the new term. A lot of it, you are working around these weak links. And a lot of these people, as soon as they feel better, they go back and do the same thing that got them in trouble. And if they still have that weak link, they're going to get in trouble again. You know, you have this chronic rotator cuff tear, which many people get by the age of 60, even people without shoulder pain, if you do MRIs on them, like 40% are going to have rotator cuff tears, right? It's like gray hairs and wrinkles. So if once they're feeling better, they go back and they're doing heavy, you know, repetitive, crazy movement, you know, stuff, they're going to get in trouble again. So you need to modify their, I'm not saying stop working out. You got to, you got to keep going. You just have to learn to modify. So in the book, I, you know, you probably saw at the end of one of the books, my first book, I have the top 20 ailments. And, you know, what are the workarounds that, you know, so you can keep going, stay active, but not constantly be, you know, poking at this hornet's nest that you have. So, um, but, but if you can get rid of those weak links, especially if you have a, if you notice a tight, mobility is a real big thing, you know, tightness in muscle groups happen. And the other thing that happens with age is, you know, your body's made up of this collagen, which is the main, like, it's like a rubber band in all your tissues. And it's very, when you're younger, it's, it's like a brand new rubber band. That's perfect with, you know, my, with my age, it's like that rubber band you find behind the radiator, you know, and you look at it and it kind of looks okay. And then you pull on it a little and it, like, oh, it didn't quite go back where it was. And then you pull on it again and it's like, Ooh, that snapped with almost no pressure. That's, that's your collagen. And if you take your hand, I remember uh, if you take your hand, there's this soft skin on the top of it. That's your collagen. If, if you get a kid, like a 10 year old and squeeze that tight, hold it and let go before you can let, before you can even look at it, it is exactly back where it needs to be. With age, it goes down a little slower. I'm noticing mine goes down slow. It goes down though. Some people, as you get older, you hold it and it, it, it stays there and you got to flatten it. That is collagen that has lost its elasticity. And that's what happens with your body after injuries and with age. So that loss of elasticity is the reason it doesn't take much. You can start a lawnmower and tear your rotator cuff. You can turn slightly like you've done your whole life on a pickleball or a paddle court and tear your Achilles, right? You can like, like you know, Al Gore, our vice president, uh, playing basketball, no problems prior. He takes a step, he tears his Achilles. Bill Clinton supposedly was coming down steps at Greg Norman's house, tears his quadriceps tendon, just coming down steps. Now, Clinton... Maybe there was another story there. I mean, I could see him jumping up. Uh, we won't go there. But, you know, but, but the thing is, these are middle-aged folks in presumably good shape with these weak links that they didn't even know they have. Some weak links you know you have, but I mentioned stealth. A lot of this stuff is happening below the radar. You don't even know you have it. And you can kind of assess for it and test for it and try to find it. And then, again, hopefully do those things to make them less of an issue. So I've been extremely fortunate to have the opportunity to work with uh, professional Olympic athletes. And I think what a lot of people don't realize about these elite athletes is that most of their training is dedicated to keeping them on the field or on the court or on the links. And that's something that you mentioned in your book as well. Elite athletes take preventative maintenance very seriously. And you've been in the trenches with these guys. You were the orthopedic physician for the Philadelphia 76ers for 12 years. And Allen Iverson, who's an NBA MVP, three-time scoring leader, six-time All-Star, and like you said, one of the toughest athletes of all time, has said it was you who kept him in one piece. So what would you recommend golfers do to build a more durable body so that they can stay in one piece and maybe increase their longevity in golf as well? I, th I think um, especially golfers as they age, before they go out, they need to, they need to take that 10 or 15 minutes to prepare their body for, uh, for golf. And it's some simple, it could even be some simple, you know, 
jumping jacks, running in place, get some blood flowing because when blood's flowing through these tissues, they be behave more, they lubricate, they behave more elastically, the temperature changes and it, it's a different material. It's like that candy Turkish taffy that we all had as kids. If it's cold and you hit it on the, on the table, it shatters, right? And you could eat it in pieces, but if you let it warm up a little bit, it's very gooey and, and you're, it, it's called viscoelasticity, the properties in your body that have that. And so warming up, there is, there is something about warming up and some gentle stretching, whether it's, you know, static stretching, dynamic stretching, that's a whole nother conversation that we can get into. And, and I think, I think the point is that it, you want to, before you play, take the time to warm up. And, and depending on the sport, you look at what are the areas where they're getting loaded the most. And in golf, it's gonna be, you gotta, you gotta get your spine rotation, you know, get on the ground and do some kneaded chest and rotational activities, cause that's the movement that's gonna happen. Upper body, especially tennis players, they tend to tear that calf muscle a lot. It's called tennis leg. So tennis players are gonna be working their forearms a little cause and their shoulders, they're gonna be working, um, their calf stretch the calf out so it depends on the activity with golfers i think number one prepare for the before you go out there if you can but on the days that you're not golfing you need to be doing balanced work on your body and and, and deal with those if you can find those imbalances that's fine but if they're in better shape you know you look at these younger golfers they you know not like the old golfers these are incredible athletes they're in in tremendous shape and you look at a guy like Tiger Woods, the stuff he put, he probably did more harm to his body with his compulsive, you know, working out with Navy SEALs and taking all this punishment. And that's sure it makes you tougher mentally and physically, but it also takes a toll on your body. I don't think you have to, you don't have to abuse your body or push it to the limit every day. Because uh, if you, you know, a bow that's, they, the quote is a bow that's stretched to its limit will, will surely break. And we see that in a, a lot of times athletes, when they push themselves hard, I, I know when I took care of some Olympic athletes, it's they'd always break down right before the trials when they're really maxing out and they're just hitting that throttle and they're going overward, maybe not recovering enough, pushing, 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 finding that limit. And you sometimes find the break point. So um, they, they need, they should be doing strength training. They need to be working on flexibility for sure. Um, you know, and, you know, you can do total body for all of that, but it's also nice to work with somebody like you and find out, okay, you know, your shoulders are fine. Your lower back seems pretty good, but you've got really tight hamstrings. You got really tight calves. We got to focus more on that uh, and, and find those areas that they, they really need the work. I love, you know, using, um, and then we'll talk about recovery too, but I love the Theragun uh, massage gun. I've become like hooked on that. Yeah, it's a great company. It's a great. It's the design of it. You know, at first I used to use the jackhammer, which was the cheap ones you buy on Amazon. It's just like this, boom, 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 boom. But then I was smart enough to try a Theragun, which the ergonomics of it allow you to get to places that it's a it's a smoother, softer sound. A lot of different uh, heads that you can put on it. And the depth of penetration is a little better on that. I'm, I'm doing some work with um, Theragun, um, not officially yet. So there's no conflicts here when I say this, but only because I loved it so much um, that I've become friendly with uh, Jason, the, the inventor and owner, um, and I'm giving them some ideas on things. But I, I think every, every golfer, every tennis player should have one of those in their bag. And you can even use it before you go out on tight areas. You can use it afterwards as part of your recovery. I have other ideas on recovery, which is, is as, as important as the training. Um, but, um, you know, I think the Theragun helps to have in your bag. I don't know if you have a similar massage gun or if you like using those or not, but they really well, do release tight areas. It's almost like magic. I, I at first thought it was some sort of like novelty or something like something that you know i thought i'd give it a try actually the reason i tried is because a friend of mine who i have a lot of respect for was suddenly using it with his clients and I'm, okay well ask him a little bit about it he sent me the research and i read the research and i was blown away so i just got one myself before even trying it tried it on myself and it's like magic it works really really quickly and it works very effectively yeah, you probably use it on your clients too. It's um, and it's it's worth having. It's it's an investment worth having. If anybody wants to stay active and is an athlete, um, even at, at any level, I don't. You don't have to be a professional athlete to benefit from these. And I think after the age of forty, you'll really appreciate it. Unless you have somebody who's giving you massages all the time. Yeah. This is this is the. But I this is almost better in in some way because you can really work an area. You can uh, you can go deep into the muscle. You can go light into the muscle. You can release tight areas. So. 
you know, I, I, I use it all the time. Uh, you don't need, you know, they have different levels of it. You don't need the really high end industrial one, the pro, but I like the elite. The Theragun elite is um, quieter. It's a little lighter and it lasts forever. It's, it's unbelievable. And it is, it is worth having had the old jackhammer off Amazon for, for $99. Uh, and I had a lot of friends get that originally. Now I've talked them all into upgrading. If you, if you use it and you find you like it, it's worth the upgrade because it'll last forever. And um, I think that those are the kind of things that when you talk about maintenance, body maintenance, it's just one of those tools you got to have in the shed um, for recovering. And you, you also said something interesting, and I don't know if I had it in my book or not, but the preparation that these athletes put in. So I, when these kids come out and they want to just go out and play, I say to them, you know, and I used to say this before, now that he's not playing anymore, I still use him because everybody knows him. I said, Michael Jordan, you know, for every minute he was on the court, for every minute he was in the court, I would bet he spent an hour at least behind the scenes preparing his body in different ways for that, whether mentally preparing, physically taking shots, working out, and they never see that, right? They just see the lights go on and they run out on the court and they play. Uh, and these athletes put a lot of time in. If you ever, if they ever go early to these games, if you go to the shoot around, even you see that before they come out, they're they, they're out there an hour or so before anybody's in the stadium doing stuff. And that's just part of it. So, you know, with Michael Jordan, I'll bet it's that way. For every minute on the court, he spent an hour. Yeah, I heard uh, stories about Kobe Bryant, especially at the end of his career when his body was really broken down, spending upwards of six or eight hours prior to a game just to get ready to play that game. And the game would just take everything out of him. He wouldn't necessarily practice. He would just do the same thing before the next game, build himself back up. Lights come on. He goes on the court. People don't see all that preparation, all that planning that goes into it. Oh, yeah. The, and, Gary, you know, he worked with uh, Gary Vitti. I don't know if you know Gary. Uh, he was the trainer all those years for the championship Lakers. Great guy. But he worked hard. He was busy behind the scenes. Those That staff really works hard with these with these athletes. And some of them are self-motivated and will do it on, the own, on their own. Others, that's one of the things I find with the athletes. They're, they've been coddled, many of them, so much that if you don't walk them through everything every time, a lot of them, then there's others that are completely motivated and do it on their own. I'm not saying they're all like that, but there are some, they couldn't make it to a doctor's appointment on their own. If you, I don't care what you did, you have to, they'd have to bring them, you know, they'd have to pick them up take them here, get them home, write down everything I said, but yeah. It's, well, since we can't control our family history or genetics, what can we do knowing this history to modify how it affects us? Say, for example, uh, a strong history of, um, say, cardiac disease. Well, like you said, the first thing is choose your parents wisely. You have to, you know, that's what we say, you know, but no. Um, but I say to that is one of my lines is it's never too late to change your fate. You know, yeah, so genetics may hand you certain you know, cards, but doesn't mean that's the way the game's going to end, right? And some people are lucky and have great genetics. Others, you know, in advance what, what the issues are going to be. And, you know, if it's a cardiac issue, you you have to be, you know, see docs, get, get checked more frequently, keep your cholesterol down, be more fit, um, be smart about your body. And, and you can, you can change, you can change how it plays out. Other times you're unlucky. I mean, sometimes you're just not lucky. And, and no matter what you do, you know, they always talk about Jim Fix, you know, the runner who, you know, he died of a, a heart condition and everybody, well, look, if that guy died of a heart condition, then, you know, but that you can't do that. You can't think that way because he could have died 10 or 20 years earlier if he, if he wasn't in, in such great shape. And there's even some suggestion that he ignored some things towards the end that he could have gotten checked. And, you know, sometimes a lot of people, don't want to see it. I'm that way myself. I rarely ever go to a doctor. I mean, if, if you can fault me, I need to, I really need to go get checked. But, you know, I always think, well, my stress test is like, I'm out there in the, in the heat last night for you know, two hours playing guys that are half my age and I was fine. So maybe that's my stress test, but no, that's not the way to be. You really should get your checkups, you know, try to find those weak links, look at your genetics, whatever you can do. Uh, and, and you can, yeah, you can make, you can make a difference there. What about the people that are over the age of 65? Will modifying their behavior influence their longevity? I believe it does. Yeah, I believe it does. I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever too late. I mean, it's tough if somebody's already really sick and can't do things and that's hard. Once you're sick, 
it's hard to to do things but you know even you look at some of these the cancer patients i'm, I'm right now uh, i was just a guest on a program with the american cancer society with the pat croce's doing uh, i think it's called heal that's health and energy health energy and active living daily or something like that and it's really about cancer patients and keeping them positive and keeping them motivated and trying to keep them moving because once a system goes down, whether it's you've had that heart attack and you're less active or you had that shoulder surgery, we talked about that fall, that you break your hip, all systems can start going down and you got to find ways. And this is the one thing we learned from athletes that when there's an injury, you don't say, okay, come back when it's healed and then we'll start working on you. It's like, okay, we got to keep everything else functioning at a high level until that injury heals. And then even then let's do what we can with that injured part without 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 jeopardizing it so it's it's what what i call them the movement movement you know when i was in my training any injury was put in a cast and people were put on the shelf and you were to when i and i had a bad football injury to my knee as a, as a teen or in college it was in college uh, i was put in a cast for an entire summer the cast came off my leg looked i had like i had polio they're like okay you'll be fine you know no follow-up appointments no rehab we don't do that anymore. If you don't have to keep something immobilized, we keep it moving. We try to keep it strong. We try to keep it flexible while it heals. We keep the whole rest of the body in shape. If they're, if they can't run on land, they're running in the water, right? If they can't use their legs, they're using an upper body ergometer. We're just, so you're trying to keep everything going while that part heals. And it's the same thing with people who have illness, although it's hard because you, you get depressed, you can't move, you're, you're, you're in pain maybe, or you think you're, you're worried about even living or surviving and, you know, especially cancer patients, but there's great evidence that if, if they get active, that you can boost your Im immunity. If you can lower your stress levels, you boost your immunity, you can heal better. And there's no, one thing I've learned being a surgeon all these years is that attitude affects healing. I don't know how or why, but, you know, I really believe, uh, that managing your own stress and being positive has has a, has an effect on you. I don't think you I don't think you can make everything go away or cure every disease, but I can tell you the people who are really negative and are down down down, I know sometimes they're going to be a problem and they're the ones who seem with the same ailments as the other people, same exact ailment, they're still struggling whereas somebody else is doing great. And so I the, the power of the mind in this and I'm not saying you can turn things around with your mind or cure cancer or but I think it can really, you can really optimize your recovery and your healing if, if you get your head on straight and learn. And meditation, I think meditation is huge. For athletes, you see a lot of them now learning breathing techniques and lowering stress levels and focusing. Um, I, I would add that to the list. When I, when I do my second edition, there's a lot more I'm going to add in there. But I, even in back when this book was written, I have a lot of this stuff in there. I think it was way ahead of its time, my original framework. So I would just expand on a lot of that stuff. Well, I want to share a story about the late, great Gordie Howe, Mr. Hockey. Gordie so, Howe. Gordie Howe played in the National Hockey League until he was 52 years old. And quite effectively, I might add. Was he really? As a 52-year-old, in his final season, he scored 15 goals. He had 41 points, and he was seventh in team scoring. And over the course of his career, he had 801 goals, which is second to Wayne Gretzky, and 1,850 points, which is fourth all time. Now, he retired in, I believe it was 1980. In the mid-90s, his son, Mark, started playing with the Red Wings. And so, Mr. Howe... And then the Flyers, and then the Flyers right? That's right. Mark Howe was with us. And uh, so, Mr. Howe would hang out with, in the dressing room with the players just to be around the atmosphere. And I don't remember which season it was, but it was in the playoffs. Sergei Fedorov hurts his shoulder. And apparently, it's more painful than serious, but painful enough where Fedorov isn't sure whether he'll play. And so Mr. Howe volunteers to talk to Fedorov and explain to him the difference between pain and injury. And Fedorov understands what Mr. Howe is telling him. He goes on to play. And I believe the Red Wings won the Stanley Cup that year. My point is that pain can be a major barrier to not only winning Stanley Cups and golf tournaments, but also to an active lifestyle. But there is a difference between something that hurts but isn't causing any damage versus something that's more serious. Can you please explain the difference between pain and injury and maybe provide some advice for how to deal with each? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I, I talk about that a lot. I think I cover that in, in the book as well, where I talk about hurt versus harm. Yeah. And um, 
And in fact, I had this exact conversation with a patient probably two hours ago, you know, the hurt versus harm discussion that, that something may hurt a little bit, but there's a difference between it might hurt a little bit versus you're harming yourself doing it. And it's one of the things that Alan Iverson always wanted to know. If it hurt a little bit, he didn't care. Am I going to harm myself? Am I going to harm myself? Or am I going to do permanent damage or even temporary damage, further damage by playing on this? With a lot of athletes, I think if you can show them the difference between hurt and harm, some stuff's just going to hurt a little bit more, right? If you have a bad bruise on your on your on your hand and you keep hitting it, yeah, every time you use it or it hurts, but you're not harming yourself using that. Whereas if you have a fracture that's not quite healed and you're going out and doing something stupid on it, um, it's, it could inter interfere with healing. It's the same thing, a shin splint versus a stress fracture. They both feel the same in the shin area, right? Uh, a shin splint you can work through. It hurts, but if you can work through it, and it's not, you're not limping. You don't want you, you never want somebody out there where they are limping on it or it's swollen and they can't perform. But if you're performing pretty good and it's tolerable, you're not going to harm that. Whereas if you keep going on a stress fracture, you can have a complete fracture. You can harm it. Big, big difference. So yeah, that I think the hurt hurt versus harm. And I, I deal with this every day in my own body. If I ever woke up one morning and, and something didn't hurt, I mean this, I would swear I had moved on to the next level. I was in heaven or something like that because I've got a, an array of things and I'm used to it. I just hate when something new gets added to that. You know, that after COVID, I, I should, I should know this, but the layoff from COVID um, and we're, and we're going to see, we're, we're, I'm already seeing, I'm starting to see the, 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 the explosion of injuries in these kids that have been on the shelf for a year, but I myself should know better you know, I'm an old guy with a lot of beat up body parts and imbalances and I play tennis and I'm, you know, my body's probably adjusted to that, to where I've got in my dominant arm, maybe that little extra mobility from playing all the time, strength in certain muscles from playing all the time. So you stop playing because of COVID, everything's closed and I'm not playing for six months or so. And I go out and I've never, ever had a shoulder problem in my life. And I go out and I start hitting the same way. I always have not aggressive and I not aggressively. I'm not overdoing it because not much was open. And for the first time ever, I developed this rip roaring shoulder problem. And I know it was, it was being on the shelf was, was not good for me. Right. So I should know better than that, but, but, but what can you do? We, we had a pandemic and everybody was locked up and the gyms were closed. I could work out a little bit at home. I wasn't hitting balls. I could go out in the driveway and do shadow swings or try to find a wall to hit on, but it's not the same. And the body reverted back to something that made it more vulnerable again. And when I went back out and start, started hitting it with what I've always done before, it broke down. And it's, I'm, it's been around for a while. It's just getting better now to where it's still there, but I'm, you know, again, hurt versus harm. I know it's not torn. It hurts. I can play through it. And so I, I keep playing. But about uh, like osteoarthritis, uh, is that something that you generally recommend people to try and work through or do you have strategies to deal with that? Yeah, it depends on what joints involved uh, and if you're able to. But, you know, the thing I see the most and it's one of the most common is osteoarthritis of the knee. I mean, it's extremely, extremely common, uh, whether it's age related obesity. Obesity is a big factor in, in arthritis and arthritis progression. If you're if carrying extra weight, it will progress more rapidly. Remember, I told you that five, every pound, extra pound you carry, your knee thinks it's five to seven. That, add that up, that amplifies. But um, so, you know, genetics, alignment, all of these things can cause arthritis. But if, if once you, you know, arthritis, people think that runners, running causes arthritis. All these distance runners, oh, you're going to wear your joints out. There's never been any proof that running causes arthritis. You could have lifetime distance runners who have really good joints. But the problem is if you have arthritis, is that high impact load, will running cause progression of that arthritis? So it doesn't cause arthritis, but if you have arthritis from other reasons, genetics or an old injury, or you had your meniscus removed when you were younger and you're starting to develop arthritis, is running the smart thing to do? And I, I say you really need to start changing your mindset on that. And walking is good. Water-based exercise is good. Elliptical is good. You got to keep going. That's all good for arthritis. But but should you be pounding it and abusing it, that's where you might, the hurt and the harm will overlap a little bit and you can make things a little worse. So, you know, I like to limit that. And I tell patients, um, you know, 
sometimes somebody has a good knee and they tear their meniscus and you go in and you clean it up and you while you're in there you say wow that's you got the cushion's a little beat up in there more than the x-ray suggested and so now you have this discussion look you you've got some arthritis in there in addition to that cartilage tear now that the meniscus was torn and you lost some you don't even have as good shock absorber around that arthritic area so should you be running? That's the question. Or maybe you need, instead of distance running, you now you're going a couple miles twice a week and you're mixing with other cross training where it gets more sensible. And I'll say to patients, look, you have 10,000 miles left on this knee. You want to use it all up this year or do you want it to last a lifetime? That's your call. And I have one patient say to me, how do you know I have 10,000 miles left? I'm like, I, I, I'm just, I said, I'm just, you know, I'm giving you kind of an example. It's not exact, but just trying to make a point here. You know, he actually, he actually said, how do you know I have 10,000 left? No, there's not some kind of gauge in there, but, but yeah, you got to think differently. So if, if it's about, it's about uh, load management, they call it now with, you know, we saw that a lot with, um, with, um, with the Sixers this year. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because Kawhi Leonard, who, for those of you who don't know, Leonard plays for the Clippers and he's dealing with a serious injury right now. And, and there's rumors that he's upset with the Clippers for how it's been managed. Perhaps in his opinion, it was maybe mismanaged a little bit. And he has a history of this going back to 2017, 2018 with the Spurs. And it was the same situation there where he was injured. He felt that maybe the team mismanaged it or didn't take his injury seriously enough. And he has to be traded. He was traded to Toronto, where he played one season, the 2018-2019 season, and injuries were never an issue. And because he was able to avoid injuries and perform at such a high level, he actually led the Raptors to the NBA title. And I think a major reason why he was able to avoid injuries and play so well was because of the great work Alex McKechnie did in managing his workload. And that's the approach that you're talking about, load management. Can you please explain what that is and maybe how we might apply it to our training schedule and to our golfing season? Yeah, well, uh, when it comes to stress on your, on your joints and on your body, um, musculoskeletal stresses accumulate silently. They actually, load occurs over time and that's where the recovery is, is important. And recovery, people talk about recovery, but it's, it really is, it, it's a deeper conversation than what is recovery? Are you talking about your, your metabolic system recover? You know, you can have a metabolic recovery after a hard workout. The body just needs to, is it a, is it, is it local recovery or is it systemic recovery? And I, I almost look at it like, like when you pay taxes, you pay federal taxes, you pay state taxes, you pay local taxes. So after a hard workout, you have the local areas that were pushed need to recover that muscle. Maybe that if you're a runner, the calf muscle or a basketball player, the calf muscles or the legs have to recover. And everybody recovers differently. Muscles recover different. Some people recover after a hard workout in 48 hours, they're fully recovered. Others can take three or four days or more to recover. So maybe the muscles are recovering, but then you have a metabolic load. You, your body needs to recover too metabolically. You can you can have overtraining from a metabolic standpoint where you get into some serious uh, overtraining issues metabolically. And we saw that with one of our players uh, when we went to the finals uh, against the Lakers, the Sixers, Aaron McKee, he, towards the end of it, he almost, I mean, he almost went into metabolic failure. His, all of his enzymes were up and I mean, this was overtraining at the highest extent. And you don't, you don't think of it that way with a basketball player, but they are revving their engines for, you know, over and over and over and, and not allowing the recovery in there. So it could be a systemic recovery, your whole body nutritionally, you need to recover. One muscle group might need to recover. It's like when you go to the gym, if you're doing heavy biceps that day, it's the biceps that need to recover. Your legs don't need to recover for that. But there's also, if you do a workout that's biceps and triceps and chest, those muscles have to recur, recover, but you've also stressed your system, the systemic metabolic. So that needs to recover too. So, and everybody's different. Some, you know, your, your muscle makeup and your recovery pattern. So, you know, that's about proper rest, nutrition, um, you know, things like there's some great stim devices, the Mark Pro, I don't know if you know the Mark Pro or H-Wave, Mark Pro is worth looking at. 
it's uh, it's it got really big in the cycling world. The the distance cyclists, the the uh, Lance Armstrongs of the world, and people like that had these two units, and they would put them on both quads at the end of the day, and just it's a it's a it's a stim, but it's a low current stim that's non fatiguing. So it's not like the Russian stim that you use to strengthen work. It's just a pump. It's a pump action. And what you're doing is pumping the metabolic waste out of the muscles. It's a low grade activity. The same way for recovery, when we talk about rest, we don't talk about laying on the couch necessarily. It could be getting on a stationary bike and just going at a very low, you know, submaximal amount that enhances recovery. So rest doesn't have to be, you know, sleep. It, sleep's important, don't get me wrong, but rest might be relative rest where it's a low, low grade activity. So something like the Mark Pro, um, almost every, I would say almost every National League, uh, American League pitcher, Amer uh, professional pitchers are, you instead of icing, which used to be the big thing, ice, ice, ice. Now there's question, does ice really help recovery or not to a body part? So they're using these types of stim devices. You'll see them, they put the pads on and they're little portables, they sit there and it'll just twitch, 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 twitch. And that, that helps the muscles recover. So it's focal pitchers, not putting it on their whole body. It's the arm that's usually the arm and shoulder and upper back. And for golfers, the same thing, they would find these effective. They're really big in the CrossFit world too, that, that, that you'll, you'll see people using the Mark Pro or the, it's really the Mark Pro Plus is the one that I prefer because it has, a, it has a, it has the low grade stim uh, pump action. And then there's another setting for pain. It's almost like it, like it would be a TENS unit. So those kind of thing. Another tool in the toolbox. It's not the only thing that you need, but you you, you know, uh, it, it's kind of a, a uh, an offset of the H-Wave device that you would have seen in almost every locker room. The H-Wave is the big professional device that they would put on athletes when they needed, you know, stem or recovery. Um, so I think that's an important part too, to, you know, recovery is, is, is critical. What, what kind of, when you're assessing an athlete and you're monitoring their workload, what kind of markers are you looking for? Uh, there's, there's for metabolic, you look at, you know, if you, if you check your morning resting heart rate every day and know what's normal for you, if you start seeing that going up five, 10 beats, that's a sign that you're, you're on a little bit of overload. And that's one thing you sometimes will see sleep deprivation. You'll see muscle soreness that persists, not, not just the kind from a good workout, but just achy muscle soreness, irritability. There's a lot of little ways to look at it. There's blood chemistry markers that you can look at too. Like, you know, for an athlete that's pushing themselves um, to that extent, muscle breakdown, you'll see some muscle enzymes. Uh, you, you might see in, in a urinalysis, some, some breakdown products that shouldn't be there. You got to watch for dehydration. You know, you know, they talk about peeing clear rather than dark dark, dark. If you know that you're a little dehydrated, you, if you ever, if you ever wind up with some uh, hemoglobin in your urine, it will look darker too. So, you know, if you're, if you're seeing dark urine, uh, it's either dehydration or potentially other things. So there are some metabolic markers, but most people aren't going to be going for blood tests, but you got to look for some irritability, some, uh, some muscle aches that aren't normal for use, a little bit of sleep deprivation, uh, elevated resting heart rate, those are the kinds of things that you look for, for overtraining. One of the things I want to ask you about is, is surgeries. Despite our best efforts, sometimes surgeries are necessary. Uh, some surgeries are more invasive than others. Some have better outcomes than others. But one of the challenges I think people have is knowing when to get that surgery done. How do you decide with your patients when that time is? Well, you always have to individualize it. Um, you could have the same ailment in five different patients and two of them need surgery and three of them don't, right? It depends on their goals and what they have to be doing. But when you're talking about higher level athletes, uh, there are some things that need surgery from the start. No question. And I'm pretty concerned for a surgeon. I'm pretty conservative. So I try to manage stuff conservatively. But if you tear your, if you're a higher level athlete, you tear your Achilles, you need it fixed. You know, a, a 60 or 70 year old with an Achilles, there are ways sometimes non-operatively to deal with that. So that's that's a no that's a no brainer. Um, you get an ACL tear in an athlete that usually needs to be fixed unless they're a swimmer or a cyclist who can maybe live with that. If they're doing any three dimensional activity, they're not going to perform with a torn ACL. Now, some ice hockey players can get through the season because they're gliding and they don't have that sudden uh, 
stop shift. So I've surprisingly seen some hockey players play without their ACL, but in general, you're, you need that. It gets trickier with things like a meniscus tear, a small meniscus tear. Joel Embiid, you know, our center had it to tore his meniscus uh, early on in the, in the, in this, in the playoffs. And I, you know, they, I think they wound up, I didn't see him for this, but I think he wound up seeing like 10 different people read the MRI. That tells me it was pretty small, right? If you have that many people looking at it um, and yeah, you can manage that. You can get through playoffs with that and monitor him as long as he's again, hurt versus harm. The risk there is a big guy like that. If you want, you have that little breach in the meniscus, you can tear it further. And that's what happened to him on his opposite knee years ago, where I, was on record saying, you know, he's got a torn lateral meniscus and it's not, it's not playoffs. It's not the Olympics. Why not deal with it? Cause it's not going to get better. And they, they sat on it, sat on it. He played, he played and eventually it got bigger and they, and he wound up having surgery. I, I think any meniscus tear in that kind of an athlete, you're probably going to have to address and probably operate on, but that gets trickier. You know, you get a middle-aged athlete with a small meniscus tear. A lot of times we'll try to manage that conservatively. So, you know, it depends on, and if it keeps coming back and it keeps bugging them, then you move to the plan B. I tell everybody there's a plan B and a plan C here. And we'll try to go without surgery. And I have a lot of buddies I play tennis with who, you know, I could swear they're going to need it. You know, they're like, oh, it's, I got it. You know, you have a tear. It, uh, you're hurting. We try an injection. We do a little therapy, take some time off, then go, let's go back and test it and see how you do. And two years later, they're still playing and not having an issue. So you learn from that. Not every tear needs to be fixed. Same thing with cuff tears. After a certain age, you do MRIs, you're going to see these small tears. If it's not hurting all the time and you're able to function and you got good mobility, fine. But if you keep, if you can't raise your arm and everything else is, is failing, or if you're high level, you're a pitcher with that same thing, you're, you're probably going to manage it differently up front. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of interesting regenerative things being done that are trying to avoid surgeries at this point with PRP and stem cells. And can you get these, a lot of these issues to heal without major surgery? I mean, there's, it, I think the future is really bright in, in my world of orthopedic surgery of, of the things that we're doing with regeneration. It's pretty amazing. I have one more question and sure. you know everybody's wondering about this. Tiger Woods, what's his recovery going to be like? And do you think he'll recover enough to be able to play on tour again? That's tough to say. You know, I was, if you've read any of the papers, I was quoted a lot when, when he was hurt, people called me. I, uh, I'm fortunate enough that a lot of the reporters call me for stuff like this. And I, I had never seen him, but I know that was a devastating, that was, I mean, he's had a lot of, he's had a lot of injuries with ACL tears and meniscus and back surgery. And, but this is a different animal when you open fracture of your, the, you know, tibia and all the other injuries he had. I, I think it's, uh, you never bet against a guy like Tiger because the mind can override a lot of physical things. But I think that's a, that's a steep hill to climb for him to come back from that. And we haven't heard a whole lot about his recovery, you know, because he had, I don't know if he needed a skin graft or not. Those fractures sometimes don't heal. When, when it's an open fracture, you can develop an infection. Even years later, it could, you know, you think you're okay. And then all of a sudden you wind up with a bone infection that, that rears its head. So hopefully, I mean, his management was perfect. They got it right away. They did everything they needed to do, the best of care. And hopefully it goes on to full healing. And then, you, you, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you never bet against somebody like that, but I think, I think, I think it would be a tough, especially at his, where he is in his career, right? Does he want to go back and, and prove something or has he already proved everything he needs to prove? That's, that's, that's where the mind starts to play. And what's your, what's your feeling on that? From a rehab standpoint, I know the effort that it would take to come back. It would take an athlete like him with that mindset to come back. Not very many people could, but he is one of the guys that, or one of the people that I think would be able to. Same thing though, just like you said, does he want to, does he want to put that time in? Cause that's, that's a lot of time and that's a full blown, you know, effort. He has a family now. He has lots of money. Maybe he just wants to enjoy life. Yeah, you don't know. I mean, I but they'll always surprise you. These pro athletes are there. They get to the top for a reason. They're different, a whole different breed of animal. And I, you know, I have a, one of the fillies I took care of, and I won't say a name, but uh, I came in for uh, something unrelated. I think it was a knee issue, he wanted my opinion on. And when I was examining him, I realized uh, I saw some stuff in his lower leg. And I'm like, is this new? 
he said, no, I've had this my whole life. I like, so he has a foot drop, a foot drop. Wow. He, can't, he has a, from a, from a nerve injury as a child. Now, if you get that child at age 12 and he's in the office and he's like, Hey doc, I love baseball. I want to be a pro athlete. I, I'd say to his parents, you know, talk to this kid. He, it's not possible. Right. But here's a guy, he's an outfielder too. They got to run. But then I thought about it with, with a foot drop, it's harder to walk because it drags. But when you're running, your, your, your hips are coming high. This guy's fat. You got to see this guy run the bases. You would never, you'd never know it. You'd never believe it. And it's, it's a kid. I would have said, don't do it. Don't even think about it. Let's don't disappoint this kid. And yet he's a pro athlete, right? So, you know, you just never know, but you, see, you learn something. This is one of the, one of those little lessons I got, right? You get lessons along the way. And uh, I've got a lot, a lot of them from the athletes and the dancers, especially. Wow. They, they're the toughest athletes I've ever worked with. Well, tell us about the framework series and where can we find it? Right. So it's on Amazon or anywhere, anywhere you can get books. Um, framework, the first book is, is, was my favorite. I got uh, my buddy Arnold did the forward for that, which is just amazing. Had, you saw all the great you know, endorsements on it from everybody you can imagine. M. Night Shyamalan to, to you know, Alan Iverson and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's more for the whole body. That's a, that's a holistic approach. And then they wanted uh, three additional uh, framework books. So I did framework for the lower back, framework for the knee and framework for the shoulder where I dig much deeper into those areas. So those, I, I think everybody, if they, they're interested, I would suggest they read the, the first book first, get the philosophy down and then take that same philosophy. If you have a knee problem or a shoulder problem or a lower back problem, uh, for golfers, I think the framework for the lower back is a good book, even if you don't have back problems, because I have this uh, this core progressive core program in it that goes all the way through that you start easy and it go to the highest level of performance that I think would be is a really good core program for anybody if they want a good core program and you don't even have to have back problems and who doesn't have back problems at some point at some point in your life 80% of the population are on the floor with a with a back that's out of place. And then some people, you know, their backs go out more than they do. So, but I like the core program. I think for golfers, the core, the uh, low back book would have a lot of good preventive advice just because they do, they do get into a lot of trouble with their, with their lower back. So that's the series. I hope I'm hoping to do a second edition one of these days of the first one, although I think it's very relevant. The American Council on Exercises, you probably know, used it for the, the four books for their advanced certification for all their personal trainers. That's one thing I think the trainers are wonderful. They motivate people, they keep them going, but they try these generic programs for everybody. And I really think that they need to, especially if they're working with the adult population, they really need to learn these modifications. And ACE was really great about, about training them and, and okay, try to assess, try to, before you get them in trouble, find out the those weak links and maybe not, you know, you have somebody with a crunchy kneecap that occasionally hurts when they go up and downstairs and you put them on like a program that's all lunges and squats. I guarantee you they're, they're going to set off fireworks on their knees. So that's something you can avoid it. And we learned with the Cooper clinic did a great study on exercise in adults. And they found that if somebody drops out because of an injury, a high percentage of them never go back to exercise or fitness again. So you, if somebody's motivated enough to go down that path, the last thing you want to do is, is get them, you know, right. off that path and put a roadblock in there because they may never go back on it. So you got to be smart, a little smarter about program design for the adult body. Cause it's, you know, even Arnold says, you know, you can't punish your body at 30. He used to say, you can't punish your body the way you did it at 40, the way you did it at 30. Then I heard him say, you can't train your body at 50 the way I used to at 30. And now he's like, I can't, you got to think differently at 70 than you did it before. I mean, as he's going up, he's used that same thing different times. The first one was you can't punish because he used to punish his body. I mean, he pushed it to the max, but now he tries that he's, you know, he's in bed. Well, Nick, I truly appreciate you coming on. I know everybody listening really appreciates it as well. Thank Thanks. you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely.